Well, if you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47, it's where we're going to be looking at this morning. I've given the message this morning the title, Three Keys for Living in a Godless World. We do live in a godless world. I don't want to keep going on about that. There are some, uh, sometimes preachers can just go on and on about it and they, they, they become sort of like a broken record going on about how terrible it is, how terrible. No, we've got a God who's in control of it all, who's sovereign over it all, but we still have to live in this broken world that seems to be increasingly rejecting God's ways and God's instructions for how life is to be lived. Uh, and Western Europe particularly is departing at breakneck speed from its Christian moorings or foundations. Yet at the same time, life is pretty good. We can have nice homes and nice cars, uh, nice holidays, good health care, longer lives, our children can do well, our grandchildren uh, flourish. Life can be pretty good in this world. And so there's twin temptations. On the one hand, there's a temptation to despair and to give up, to give up hope for the church. Or on the other hand, there's the, the pressure to give in and to just give in to the pressure to live like the world around us. Or perhaps you're, you're, you're wondering this morning, why should I follow God? Maybe I should just go all out and live for now and enjoy now and live in the moment and enjoy the moment and make the most of now. Why look ahead? Is there any purpose or point in looking ahead? And this morning we want to see how to live and why we should look ahead. And Genesis 47 from verse 13 to the end is a summary of the remaining five years of famine that's hit Egypt and Canaan at this time. It sets out Joseph's wise leadership. It uh, sets out his provision so the people can live. It shows us God's blessing on his family and it shows us Jacob's dying wish. And we see Joseph and his family living in a, a pagan land, in a godless land, and flourishing. And so there's at least three key lessons for us. There's a picture. There's, uh, how do we put it, uh, a prospect or a promise. And there's a priority. So three things to note this morning. A picture, a prospect, and a priority. First of all, the picture. And the picture is painted by God in these verses to show us one thing. God is the answer. God is the answer. That's what's going on in these opening verses of this section. In shaping history the way that he does here, God is painting a giant picture for us. In that picture, we see Joseph is the saviour of the known world at this time. They're this part of the world, Egypt and Canaan and the surrounding uh, nations. And as we look at this, we see uh, that this is what God is painting a picture for us. Um, because in the New Testament, we're going to find him telling us that Jesus is the saviour of the world. 
But what does that look like to help us understand and to see a glimpse that God is the sort of God who does bring salvation and that we need this sort of rescue, that he's the answer to the problem? He paints a picture in Old Testament history, in real time in history, that this is the way it is. And we see the problem here in verse 13. There's famine in the land of Egypt. It's, it's picked out in different phrases. There's no food, we're told. The famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away. The image here is of people who, who are wasting away, who are becoming thin and emaciated, and they're trekking from place to place looking for food. They're gaunt, and they're starved, and they're coming from all over Egypt to Joseph, the prime minister, and saying, you need to feed us. And they're coming from 500 kilometers away in Canaan and saying, have you food for us? And you can picture it. We've seen the scenes on our television screens of the, the Horn of Africa or Somalia or Ethiopia or Eritrea where there's been famine in recent years. We've seen what it looks like. Well, now famine has been biting for two years. There's five years still to go. We see that Joseph is set out here as the saviour, the solution to this problem. There is a solution. He has risen to be prime minister. And he has stored up the grain in the seven years of abundant harvest that there were. And now the people are coming. We read that Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt. And the word is just, it's, it's a picturesque word in Hebrew. It means that it's scraped together, that all the people, they've, 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 they've looked everywhere for every last bit of silver or gold or copper down the back of the sofa, down the side of the armchair. They're looking everywhere, under tables, under beds. And they've brought it all to Joseph. And the next year they come. And they've got no money. And so what are they going to do? Well, they say, take our livestock. You know, there's, there's something actually very good here in this because in taking their livestock, Joseph uh, is ensuring that their livestock aren't starving and slaughtered. In fact, as we read on down, we find that the, they say the next year that you have our livestock. Joseph still has it. So their animals have been taken in. Instead of starving and rotting and dying and in the fields, um, their livestock have been taken in and provided for. And then they get food in exchange for their livestock. And there's a little phrase there uh, just at... Uh, the end of verse 17, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their lives. So that little word brought means to escort somebody through distress or danger to safety. It's a picturesque word. There's Joseph. He has walked an entire nation, in fact, several nations, through distress to safety for another year. That's what he's done. And then when that year's over, they come to him in verse 18 and they say, We cannot hide from our Lord that since our money has gone, and there's that little phrase, and our livestock belongs to you. There is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies. And again, it's a very graphic uh, word that's used in the Hebrew, our corpses. They're just the living dead as they come, sort of weak and frail and gaunt to Joseph. Say, all that's left is, is our land and our corpse. 
Take us and our land, and we will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And so Joseph buys all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh, and the Egyptians, one and all, uh, sell their fields because the famine's severe, and the land becomes Pharaoh's. And we find that the people are reduced to servitude uh, from one end of Egypt to the other. And something I find historically uh, interesting about this, there's a point in Egypt's history round about this time. It's very hard to, to, to get an exact time frame here. But round about this time when power shifts from regional rulers to be centralized in the hands of Pharaoh, which is what we see here. And then we read in verse 23, Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you, so that you can plant the ground. When the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. Um, The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and food for yourselves and for your households and your children. So here's the solution. Joseph is the one who's provided the solution. He's the saviour of the people of Egypt and Canaan. And the solution to the problem is a complete entrusting of themselves, their families, their livestock, absolutely everything they've got. They entrust it into the hands of Joseph. And in return, Joseph ensures that they will live. Nobody will be left behind. There's a solution. Joseph is the saviour of the world. And we read, I suppose we read this with 21st century Western eyes. We think, ah, hold on a minute, Mark. There's some things in here I want to raise a few questions about. This seems a bit harsh. Uh, Could Joseph not just have given the food out for free? Why did he have to reduce the country to servitude? What's he doing imposing a 20% tax? I suppose just a a couple of things uh, to remember here. One is that in the ancient world, they really didn't have this idea of something for nothing. Um, the, the people certainly didn't think so. They keep coming and going, right, we've looked at what all we've got. We've given you our money. Uh, there's our animals. Um, we've nothing else left. There's just our corpses, our, our bodies, and our land. Here, take that. This, even if you have to give yourselves over or sell yourselves into slavery, that was an option. It should also be borne in mind that slavery... Don't think of it in terms of the the African-Americans who were kidnapped and chained and sold into slavery and working on the cotton plantation and being whipped and beaten. That's not the the scene here. Uh, This is uh, actually a pretty good option. Um, You could sell yourself into slavery and that meant you got a roof over your head. Uh, That meant you got a meal on your table. Um, Some people so liked working for their masters uh, that provision was made to stay with your master for life, uh, even after your time of service was up. Uh, So this type of slavery here is is a different thing. This is, uh, you know, you work for your keep. It's almost, because they're giving themselves to the government, it's almost like sort of of a form of government benefit or welfare scheme. Uh, You work for Pharaoh, Pharaoh sees you're fed. And Joseph sets up this scheme to see that no one is left behind. Everyone, all of Egypt, we're told, is catered for. Then even this 20% tax, sure, we pay, what is it, 23%. Uh, But in the ancient world, the standard was a third. A third to three quarters. So, you know, if you were 
an ancient reader reading this, you go, wow, look at that, only 20%. This guy, Joseph, is really generous. But above all, look at the reaction of the people in verse 25. You have saved our lives, they said. You have saved our lives. You can sense their gratitude. Here is Joseph, the saviour of the world. And, you know, what's God doing here? Well, here he is. He's he's painting a picture for us to look at and to see a parallel with our lives and our world. This famine paints a picture for us. We are in a world where people are starving, spiritually starving. They're facing death, an eternal death. They stand on the brink of of a lost eternity, starving for the bread of life. It impacts all of society. No matter who you are, you have got a soul. You were made to live forever. You were made to know God and to enjoy God. And we live in this world disconnected from God, thinking that the end of life is just the end, not realizing that there's more to come. Starving. Starving, nothing to feed our souls with, living yet dying, and judgment awaits. You know, I was reading this morning um, a bit from one of those old writers, a guy called John Bunyan, and he talks about the preciousness of our souls. Let me quote it to you. He says, Suppose a prince should descend, I say, he says, yes, suppose a prince should descend from his throne to pick up and put in his bosom something that he had seen lying trampled under the feet of men. Do you think that he would do this for an old horse shoe or a trivial thing as a pin or a broken shoelace? Would you not conclude that the thing for which that prince should make such an effort must be a thing of very great worth? Why? This is the case with Christ and the soul. Christ is the prince, and as he sat there in the throne of heaven, he looked at the souls of men trampled under the foot of the law and under the penalty of death, and what did he do? He came down from his throne, stooped down to earth, and there he laid down his life and blood for them. Would he have done this for inconsiderable things? No, nor would he for the souls of sinners either, if he had not valued them higher and he valued heaven itself. Your soul. You have a soul. You're made to live forever. And to know God. You're in a famine. The people around us are in a famine. They're facing a lost eternity. But there's a solution. Just as Joseph was the saviour of the world in this ancient day, God has appointed a saviour of the world. And in his grace and kindness... He holds out life to you. That's why we read from John 6. There's the true and better Joseph. And what did he say? He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. We were looking at the Bible study on uh, Wednesday uh, morning from Isaiah 55 where um, someone is portrayed as calling out these words, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you have no money, come buy and eat, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor and what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear to me and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Solution. See, God in the Old Testament is painting a picture for us in the life of Joseph to show us that when he says there is a true and greater Joseph coming who will provide food for our souls to save us from the famine that faces our souls, that this is something we can count on. If you haven't yet come to Christ, come to him. He is the answer. Remember, this is the picture that says God is the answer. What's the problem? The problem is that we are starving spiritually and are going to die eternally. And yet we can come to Jesus and entrust ourselves to him. And if you do that, you will find what's said of Joseph here. He will escort you through danger to safety. What a lovely phrase. He will escort you. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Escorting you through that valley of the shadow of death. What a saviour. And we would say with the people of Egypt, we will say to the true and greater Joseph, to the Lord Jesus, you have saved my life. God is the answer. There's the picture. And if you haven't yet come to Jesus and put your trust in him. Let me urge you to value your soul as highly as Christ does. To come to him. Don't just think this life is all there is. Don't just leave it up to chance. Don't just think I'll get on with living for me now. Come and put your trust in him now. And that's what the people had to do. They entrusted themselves completely to Joseph. And did they find that their trust was wasted? No, you have saved our lives. You put your trust in Christ. You're not wasting your time. You're saving your life. Those of us who have done that, the whole point is to, of this section is to help us see the need and the solution. So let us not become blinded to the need in the world around us. They need to know that there's a solution. That this isn't all there is. That God is the answer. I want to look at our second and third point much more briefly. But secondly, there's a prospect. Prospect. God will bless. God will bless. God is the answer, is the, the picture. The prospect, God will bless. See, when you do put your trust in God, are you wasting your time? Well, as we read on, we find that Jacob's sons, they've entrusted themselves to Joseph, who's acting in this story as sort of an illustration of God. And they find that they haven't wasted their time. In Genesis Genesis 12, 3, God had said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. He said, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God had made a promise that he would bless. And we see in these verses that God keeps his promise. We see it just in two ways, briefly. We see that God uses his people to bless the world. He said he would do that, 
And way back in chapter 12, 35 chapters ago, here we are in chapter 47, and he's doing it. He's bringing blessing to the world, to Egypt and the surrounding nations. God is using his man to bring blessing to these lost people. This chapter here is to show us, in part, that God keeps his word. He's keeping his promise to Abraham. And we're seeing also that God uses his people in a hostile world to bring blessing to it, back to the illustration of the salt that we had with the children. God uses us as we live for him in this world to be salt and light, to bring blessing to it. So we might look at this godless world and think, oh, what's the point? This is the point. If Joseph had said, oh, I'm just one fella following God here in this country, what's the point? Well, the whole thing would have fallen apart, wouldn't it? But God kept his promise. God did bless. And the second way we see it is that God blessed by bringing growth in the midst of catastrophe. Now we read in verse 27 that the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. There they acquired property and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Now verse 27 follows immediately on from what we're told in the previous section about the people of Egypt being sold into slavery and becoming servants of Pharaoh. And you get the impression they're just existing by the skin of their teeth. And yet the contrast. Joseph's family are being fruitful and increasing greatly in number. They're acquiring property. Interesting. See, God had said, he had promised to Abraham in Genesis 17, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. In these verses, we see God keeping his promise. And he's keeping his promise in the midst of hostile surroundings, in a hostile culture. Never mind the famine, but the culture. They're multiplying. They're growing. Here's the prospect. God using his people to bless a pagan world and God causing his people to flourish in a pagan world. Does that not have something to say to us today to encourage us? God, we may be small in number. So what? Has that stopped God before? One writer says, Neither geography nor natural catastrophe can throttle God's commitment to his own people. God had said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. They're going to grow from 70 people to somewhere in the region of 2 million. What an encouragement to us. Here's the prospect. This world that's so opposed to God in many ways, in many places, cannot stop God blessing his people or using his people to be a blessing. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. And he will. So we don't despair. Our famine conditions don't mean that the people of God won't grow. So if you're thinking about following Christ, and you think, well, you know, there's so many not doing it, and there's so few doing it, don't let the numbers game put you off. God has a track record of blessing his people amidst smallness. You're not wasting your time. And thirdly, so we've had the picture, we've had the prospect, and then thirdly, the priority. The priority. The 
priority is this. God has something better. God has something better. And we see this in the closing verses of the section. Verse 28 to 31. We learn it from Jacob. He lived in Egypt 17 years. We read, and here's God's goodness to Jacob. He had missed out on 20 years of Joseph's life. And Joseph was uh, 17 right through to when he was 37. And now here he, he, he finds that Joseph is alive and that he's prime minister of Egypt. And he gets to live 17 years on the crest of the wave, living as it were the high life in Egypt. His son is prime minister. His son is virtual royalty. So what is, how does he finish his life? Does he finish sort of thinking Egypt is the place to be? That this world is enough? No. He finishes saying, make sure I go back to Canaan. Now what's that about? Well, he's remembering the promises that God had made. Promises to Abraham, his grandfather, to Isaac, his father. Promises had been made to him saying, this is the land I am giving you. And as Jacob finishes his life, he is remembering what God had said. Never mind all the 17 years in Egypt. Never mind the 12 years of the high life after the famine was over. Never mind being on the crest of the wave. Never mind his son being the most powerful man in the country. The key thing for Jacob is, Egypt is not my home. Egypt is not my home. God's land is my home. The place that God had promised me is my home. And I want to go back and be buried there. Now, is this just sheer sentimentalism? That he has this sort of superstitious belief that he would be separated from his fathers if he didn't get to be buried beside them? No, read very carefully what he says. He says uh, in verse um, 30, But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are. When I rest, that's when I die, and I go to my fathers, would you make sure that my remains are put beside them? That's what he's saying. It's not that he needs to be buried beside them to be with them. He's gone to his fathers. That's happened. And once that's happened, he says, would you take me 500 kilometers north to Canaan and bury me beside them? Why? Because that's the land that God had promised. And he wants his family and his sons and his sons' families to remember where they're from. This world is not his home. This Egypt is not his home. And this is the priority for us. This world is not our home. This world isn't what it's all about. This world isn't simply what we're here for. And we could get sucked in and we could get focused in on this life like Jacob could have done and raising our children and grandchildren, having a nice job and a nice home and all that. And we need to remember, how are we to live in this world? By remembering that this world is not the final story. It's not the full picture. Hebrews 11, this incident is picked out. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And he worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. 
One writer says, Jacob, triumphant in faith, even at the approach of death. He's still believing as he comes to the end that there's promises about something to come that God has yet to keep. He's kept all the other promises. He'll keep this one. This world is not his home. And so as we live in this world, will we finish well like Jacob and we, will we live well by remembering that this world is not what it's all about, that we have a better place that we're looking ahead to, that we don't have to get all our fun and all our valuables and all our dreams fulfilled here, for there is an eternal life yet to come. And that's our goal. And that's where we will find lasting joy and lasting fulfillment. How do you live in a godless world? Well, you remember that God is the only answer. You remember that God is able to bless despite the state of the world around us and will do it. And you remember that this world isn't all that there is. The best is yet to come. Amen. If you're able, uh, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for this ancient story that points us to present realities and future certainties. Father, help us as we live in this world neither to despair at the state of the world or to be sucked into the world and its values. Father, thank you that there is a true and greater Joseph who provides salvation not simply out of a famine scenario but out of this great famine that eats up our souls, so to speak that starves us spiritually and thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to bring life and salvation and hope. Thank you. Father, how valuable our souls must be that we would be made to know you and that Christ would give his life to bring us back to you. Father, we pray that we would treasure that relationship with you and we pray for those that we know who don't yet have that relationship. And Lord, we pray that they would see the value of their own soul and the urgency of eternity and realize that they need to entrust themselves to this Jesus before it's too late. And Father, we pray that as we live here, we would have this confidence that you will bless your people, just like you did Jacob's family. And Father, we pray that we would have this focus, that we would look to eternity, and to know that the best is yet to come, that we wouldn't be sucked in by the cheap goods of this world, but that we would set our hearts on you and what you have in store for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.